Two Fingers Pointing to the Moon Chapter 2 Those that did not have any chores after lunch were able to enjoy two full hours of free time. The austere Georgian mansion in which we were housed was surrounded by expansive grounds in which many of us would take our solitary walks. And they were large enough that you might not encounter another resident for most of your wanderings, especially in wintertime. The light was so low in early January that by two o'clock you could already feel the waning of the day and the arrival of darkness. The sky was a pale blue cut up by wispy stratus formations. As usual I began walking straight up the gentle hill, keeping the house directly behind me. Each step was slow and deliberate and timed with my breathing, just as we had been taught. Anchoring myself with motion and breath, I allowed myself to let the myriad of sense impressions enter and leave me, making no mark. There was no limit to the level of detail I could perceive. Subtleties of scent, shifting timbres of birdsong, veins of fallen leaves endlessly branching at my feet. At this stage, I barely even had to marshal my thoughts, because there were no thoughts, just a matrix of intricate sensations. The division between inner and outer was as faint as the dying winter sun. As I reached the summit, I saw the arboretum extending downwards into the ground's northeast corner. I didn't often venture this way, preferring instead to follow the crests of the hill towards the reservoir and beyond into the orchard. But there was a trace of something, something beckoning me into the trees. So I descended, slowly, purposefully, as we'd been taught. The way became gradually more forested until I found myself on a path of sorts, carpeted by the remainder of dead leaves, loose sticks and moss. When had I last come here? I didn't remember the branches closing in like this, becoming so tangled and dense as to obscure the way forward. After several minutes, it seemed as if I had lost the path entirely. Now on lower ground, the earth had become muddy and my shoes and pant bottoms were becoming gradually more soiled. Surely I was reaching the limit now. Surely soon I would see the tall aluminium fence telling me I had gone far enough. But instead, I reached a clearing. As I emerged from the trees, I saw that one side of the clearing was flanked by a steep green bank, beyond which extended a further line of trees. Getting nearer, I realised this was not a natural slope at all. Built into one side was a wooden door secured by a heavy padlock. This must have been the wartime bunker I had heard of. I ran my hand over the scarred wooden surface, giving it a few taps. It felt strangely familiar. Half-heartedly, I gave the padlock a little shake. It was loose. No one had ever told me you could go inside. Perhaps the groundskeeper had forgotten to lock it, but then, why would anyone need to come here? Fear and curiosity did their dance, vying for control as ever. Turn back, or go inside. The door opened to darkness. The musty smell was the predominant sensation, as my eyes were all but useless, struggling to pick out the vague forms barely revealed by the dim winter light. I proceeded by touch instead, groping my way forward until I collided with a low, hard object blocking my path. Crouching down, I ran my hand over a worn wooden surface covered with small items. I picked up each in turn, eventually discovering some assistance. A lighter, and a collection of irregularly shaped candles. I lit them one by one until their flickering glow revealed the scene around me. A large, faded rug with old meditation cushions scattered on top, 
turquoise tunics pulled apart to make blankets, piles of books and papers, and all this surrounded by cobweb stacks of crates and cardboard boxes. But most surprisingly of all, a battered upright piano pushed up against the far wall. There were more candles on top, also some scraps of paper. Unconsciously, my fingers began uncurling, stretching out towards it. I looked back at the door behind me, left wide open to let in the light. I went back, closed it, and then ventured over to the piano. I lit the candles and sat myself at the keys. I set free some notes. Some were broken, all were out of tune. On the scraps of paper, someone had sketched some wobbly musical staves and populated them with notes. Four staves stacked together, three in treble, one in bass. I tried the top two parts together. I tried the bottom two parts. I was missing a pair of hands, but still, I heard it all, heard it all playing in my head. We're running. Our clothes are soaked and our shoes are full of water, but after those hot, dry weeks in India, there is a sweet relief in England's insistent rains. As we climb a grassy slope, I tug hard at Ethan's drenched sweater, causing him to lose his footing and slip backwards onto his bum. I laugh and dart past him, but he manages to get hold of my ankle just in time. And then I'm next to him, splayed out on the grass, laughing wildly. Up ahead, we see some shelter in the form of an abandoned wartime pillbox, sitting up on the crest of the hill. We get up and move towards it. Ethan gets there first and immediately starts clambering into one of its loopholes. I hesitate, but he's already inside, beckoning me to join him. Once we're both inside, we sit and catch our breath. We're so wet that shelter seems almost pointless, though there is some respite from the continual lashings of wind. I look into Ethan's eyes. Are they really green, as he always claims, or just subtle mixtures of yellows and blues? I lean in to inspect closer, but he reaches out with his lips to intercept me. We're shivering and kissing and kissing and shivering and forgetting, forgetting everything that isn't this moment, forgetting the lonely past and the threat of more loneliness to come, forgetting that he'll be going away soon.
Of course, I've considered it. Going with him to the secluded retreat, somewhere up north, far from everything. It has its appeal, letting the fantasy of spiritual enlightenment continue on and on, perhaps even indefinitely, who knows. But then, what of family, friends, worldly pursuits? Some of them belong to yesterday, some to tomorrow. But nothing belongs to the trance of the present moment. It'll just be for six months, a year, max. His attempts to reassure me only serve to increase the distance between us. I feel a familiar surge of frustration rising up. I try a different tack. Remember that time in the park with the angel fountain, when we were huddling in the trees, holding each other and crying? How could I forget? Well, maybe that's what it's all about. Facing up to those shitty things that happened to us when we were kids. Being real about it, you know? But he's not convinced. His reply comes automatically. A thought that has been thought many times before. You keep attaching to these memories, like it's a part of us. But it doesn't have to be. We can let go of all that. I continue pressing my case. What if we just need to accept that it will always be part of us? Like, make peace with it in some way. Just because it's there doesn't mean it has to control us. He nods, but our bodies begin naturally detaching from each other. The loose touch of his hand starts to feel awkward rather than comforting, his gaze more penetrating than welcoming. He looks away as he replies. I'm tired of building a narrative around who I am. And anyway, that's just the ego talking, a voice inside your head. You need to stop listening to that voice and switch on to what's going on around you. There's this beautiful present moment unfolding around us and we keep rehearsing our past traumas, projecting our pain into the world and creating more of it. You sound like a self-help book, I say, and instantly regret it. Maybe you're too scared to let go, he says, then pauses, measuring the weight of his next words. Or maybe you like all this pain and suffering. Maybe that's what draws you to me. We're sitting apart from each other now. My mind wanders into the future, into a world without past or future. A world of meditating and chanting and bowing. Every day the same. I try one last plea. All I'm saying is, what if the answers you need are right here with us? His blue-yellow-green eyes meet mine again. He says, Here there's only pain. My gaze drops to the ground. It hurts me when he says that. Outside the light is dying and the rain is only falling harder. The rain arrived forcefully and suddenly, accelerating the early onset of darkness and drenching me as I scrambled down the hill towards the main house. One of the assistants was already waiting for me when I arrived at the back door of the east wing, and I knew from the sounds inside that there must be only a few minutes until the afternoon group session. He scolded me with his tiny eyes. 
I realized I must have forgotten something. And then it came to me. This afternoon was my weekly consultation with one of the masters. You needed to arrive at least 10 minutes before the group meditation started so as not to cause any disturbance in the house. I rushed inside and started pulling at the laces of my winter boots. The assistant stood there watching me. He didn't need to say anything. He just continued to fix me with his laser gaze until my head instinctively bowed down in shame. As soon as I had changed my shoes, he turned and started moving swiftly down the long corridor that led to the main building. I followed, keeping my head bowed. Consultations were held in a small circular room built into the heart of the main building. The entrance was sealed by two imposing wooden doors above which was written, In silence, we find our freedom. The assistant opened one of the doors and allowed me to pass before closing it behind me, sealing me in a white, windowless room. At its centre, one of the masters sat in lotus on a small turquoise cushion, a faint chant whispering out from between his thin, cracked lips. Although I had arrived agitated and ashamed, as soon as I took my seat opposite him I could feel my pulse settling, my emotions calming. Focus on the breath. There is only the breath. There was sound in this room, a low murmuring drone hugging you tight, keeping you safe. It seemed to be coming from all around as if emanating from the walls. I could feel myself relaxing, relaxing and focusing. And then came the voice. Where are you? Always this question, and always the same response. I am here. When are you? I am now. Why are you? I am here to be here now. Where do you want to be? I want to be here, now. If you could be anywhere else... I could not. But if you could... The word unlocked a door. If you could be anywhere at all. I'm sitting by the engine I'm sitting by the engine Water is spurting from its mouth. Water is spurting from its mouth and eating is staring up at it wide eyes. It takes a swig from its bottom. It takes a swig. We're running. We're running to sell it to my shoes. We're running to sell it to my shoes. But after those hot, dry eyes, it's really hot. Maybe you like all this pain. Maybe you like all this pain. Maybe that's what it draws you to. Or maybe you like it. Or maybe you like it. Or maybe you like it. Was there a before this place? If so, what was there? Sometimes I would wake from a bad dream, lying there in my bed with the residues of fear tugging at me, keeping me awake. I'd try to calm myself, watch my breath, go deep into my bodily sensations. But my mind wanted answers. 
What had I been dreaming about? Every time I tried to think back, to remember, I felt myself sinking, losing balance, feeling nauseous. And the fear would get worse. I'd start trembling and fidgeting in the sheets. So I'd go back to the breath, back to the sensations. And eventually I'd relax and drift off back into sleep. But that night it wasn't working. It felt like I'd been awake for hours and the resident in the bed next to mine kept talking in his sleep, imploring someone somewhere to understand, and it was just making me feel more agitated. I decided to go to the bathroom for the third time that night, just to break up the monotony. Unlike some of the other dormitories, there was no bathroom attached to ours. You had to walk down a short corridor to reach it. As I walked out into the hallway, I noticed that the usual enveloping silence was broken by creaking. Creaking and what sounded like muttering. It was coming from the other end of the hallway that led to the second floor landing, and the grand staircase descending down to the main hall. For some reason, the fear and agitation settled for the first time that night crystallized into a sense of purpose. I turned around and followed the sounds out onto the landing. I peered over the wooden banister and saw a figure nearing the bottom of the stairs. As it reached the final step, it stopped dead. There was that faint muttering again, and then it turned and started ascending up towards me. Again, I felt no fear. I just stood there, waiting. It was the darkest part of the night, and I could only begin to make out a face when the figure was a few steps away from me. He seemed familiar, exuded a comforting presence. It wasn't Ulu, but did he work in the kitchen with me also? His big lips moved to speak, but as he reached the top of the stairs, he walked right past me as if I wasn't there. He turned right and took the corridor towards my dormitory. I followed the sleepwalker's tentative pace, keeping myself a few meters behind. When he reached the door to my dormitory, he stopped abruptly and started breathing more heavily. I allowed myself to get closer, edging right up to his back, unsure of what I was going to do. He turned around. He spoke. I'd like to go now. I think I have what I came for. The voice was familiar also. He reached out a hand. I reached out mine to meet it. His skin was so soft and delicate. Can we go now? He asked. I couldn't make out his face too well, but it seemed like he knew me, even though he must have been caught somewhere between waking and dreaming. He squeezed my hand tightly, almost tightly enough for me to pull away. There's nothing left. No more pain. We can go now. 